Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Bleiberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back to another episode of Actively Speaking. My guest today is Kevin Hebner, uh, a frequent guest on the podcast. Welcome, Kevin. Um, morning, Steve. Today we're going to talk about China. It's a topic that's been in the news a lot lately, certainly on the minds of many investors in recent months. Coming out of COVID, everybody, I think, was expecting uh, more of a rebound in China, and, and it doesn't seem to have materialized. And it's leading people to question the long-term growth story in China and has something you know, change there? Is it not as as robust as as we all thought it was going to be in in the past? So let's start out with uh, an assessment, Kevin, on um, you know what is going on with growth in China. Thanks, Dave. One way to think about it is through the lens of the the housing market. And over the last fifteen years, we've seen a pretty dramatic buildup in housing. For example, floor starts, these sorts of measures, where it's accounting for over the last decade, it's accounted for about. 20 to 25% of Chinese growth, sort of direct real, residential real estate um, activities, that compares to, say, 7% in the US. So it's a pretty enormous number. And maybe you could argue, well, at the beginning stages of development, maybe that makes sense. I, I think that's a difficult case to make. But if it's accounting for 20 to 25% of growth over the last decade, a little bit longer than that, that means about, say, two percentage points of growth, and growth has averaged, say, uh, 8% over the last two decades, has just come from residential real estate. It does look like activity is downshifting pretty markedly. And, and with that, this strong tailwind moves to a headwind in probably deducting about one percentage points from growth. So just that alone, uh, housing so going from plus two to minus one in terms of the impetus to growth is pretty big. At the same time, we have demographics kicking in, and we've had a workforce that's been growing about plus two percentage points per year. That's now subtracting by about one percentage point. So overall, trend growth is downshifting from a number, say, six to eight percent per year. So we think that's closer to Three to four percent, probably closer to three percent per year. So pretty dramatic changes over the last couple of years in terms of the growth dynamic in China. Uh, yeah. So you've used the expression "bending, not breaking" uh, to describe that. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there was a, a a rage a few years ago for videos on YouTube of all these massive collections of buildings being put up in China, hmm. residential towers that were yeah. completely empty and in some cases yeah. unfinished. What is that? I mean, what is happening with all of that? Uh, is, are those buildings being torn down? Are they finally being occupied? Yes. So, so for example, in 2018, um, the vast majority, I, I think almost 70% of home sales were to people who already had a primary residence. So they were second or third um, uh, homes for these people. In some cases, they were rented out, but the rental yield was less than 2%. So it was pretty bad. Uh, it was not a great investment um, proposition for people. And in some places, the real estate developers, with the encouragement of local governments, did build massive projects ahead of the population, hoping people would come. In most cases, that worked out okay. But in a number of cases, um, it didn't work out well. And the Wall Street Journal, for example, estimates that 
in 2018, there were still millions of vacant apartments that have been built and no one had shown up. So that was an issue. And I think that is part of the the top-down growth model to build ahead of demand that you will often, at least some of the time, um, build things that people don't want. Yeah. I mean, my recollection is, of course, that there was an expectation of continued movement of people from, you know, rural villages and countryside into larger towns and cities. Has that is that still going on? That demographic shift that, that's still going on at the margin. That was that was a huge driver of um, growth in China from Deng in seventy eight until at least two you know two thousand eight twenty ten. And to some extent, the same thing as the Soviet growth model. Um, with Lenin and Stalin is you move peasants into factories and you get big productivity boost with that. So that's that's a model that's that's well known um, in, in a number of countries. So there, there still is a little bit of that. But in terms of the workforce, there's a little bit of benefit from moving from rural agriculture regions to urban regions, but that's very small now. There's also very small benefit from increased quality of the labor force. That was also a big factor. With people, you know, many people in 78 had very little education, including senior leadership. Um, so now we have people with um, primary, tertiary, and uh, university education. But the increment in terms of the quality of workforce is also getting quite small. And then you just have the big dem- demographic um, effect going through um, the workforce shrinking by one percentage point a year. And, and given that housing is so central, if you look at the the key uh, cohort that buys homes, that's people who are 28 to 37 years old, that's peaked at just over 200 million people. But between now and 2040, that's going to decrease by just over 40%. So we've had a lot of um, building of residential properties. Some of these aren't sold yet. The prices of these are pretty crazy. The home price to income ratio in China averages for for major cities averages 38 times compared to about 15 times in major cities in the Western world. So prices look pretty crazy. The demographic argument looks pretty bad. Uh, The number of buyers, and we can see this timeline playing out pretty clearly over the next 20 years, is going to decrease markedly. So the, um, the residential real estate market is set for a very, very difficult time for the next two decades. And that's been the key driver of Chinese growth for at least the last decade. So I think it's difficult to exaggerate the challenges um, China faces on this front. So presumably there was a lot of uh, debt associated with all of this real estate construction and uh, the scenario you've just painted would imply that uh, that debt is not going to be able to be paid back. Yeah, so debt has surged. Um, since 2006, the overall debt to GDP ratio in China, so that includes households, corporate, and, and different levels of government, has increased from about 140% to 360% currently. Uh, a lot of that is in the non-financial corporate sector. So there's been a, a lot of excesses, too much investment by that sector. Uh, some it's households, some is sort of hidden in local government financing vehicles, which is a bit difficult to see. And we've also seen the increase in households. A lot of this is mortgage debt. It's not very risky because they do put up um, very big uh, down payments, typically 20 to 30%. So from the perspective of the financial sector, 
that debt doesn't have a lot of risk. But similar to the situation with Japan 30 years ago, the the debt in, for example, the real estate development sector is is very worrisome. And if you look at the um, debt service ratios in China, they look really worrisome. And they're running at levels that are about twice the level in um, major G7 countries. Um, let, let me change the focus a bit for a second. You've written a lot recently about um, changes in globalization, you know, the, prompted to some extent by COVID, but also by uh, national security issues, given the ge- geopolitical tensions between China and the rest of the world. Um, how have how is that going to affect China? The fact of you know all these sort of reshoring and onshoring going on in other countries, what what impact will that likely have on China? So China is very clear when they're saying what their growth priorities are. President Xi doesn't like real estate as a growth driver, um, and he's famous for saying since at least 2017 that that homes are for living, not for speculation. But in the five year plans and in many of his speeches, he comes out and tells us what his growth priorities are. And he does want China to be, ah, if not the leading industrial player in a lot of advanced technologies. So clearly, green tech is very important, including the, well, the EV value chain with batteries and so forth. Um, different types of tech hardware, uh, including semiconductors, quantum computing, software, including AI. And AI, actually, you've got data, the compute requirements, and the the algos as part of that, and then all the 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 tech industrial sectors and defense sectors going with that. So these these are the priorities. Now, as we de-risk our economy, and we also worry about the the dual use nature of semiconductor chips and other equipment that we send to China, this does pose um, challenges for China. China, it's it's been very important to President Xi that China becomes more self-reliant. And that's a term that he likes to use so that they don't have to depend on other countries, particularly the West, for energy, for food, for semiconductors and things like that. So certainly for at least the last six years, this self-reliance has been a key priority for President Xi. But with the changes coming in the United States and the pieces of legislation, particularly last August, this has really turbocharged the process in China and the build out of semiconductors, quantum computing, and a lot of these tech hardware and tech software areas. You know, you mentioned before the uh, analogy to Japan and the sort of quote lost decade of the 90s. I mean, there are, there do seem to be similarities. And I, um, you know, I spent most of the 1990s actually as a portfolio manager focusing on Japanese equities. And there too, you know, the company, uh, the country had had this huge real estate boom in the 1980s. And uh, sim- also another similarity is this kind of centrally directed you know, economic planning. And uh, you know, with the METI in, in Japan had identified certain industries that they wanted Japan to, to be dominated in. Uh, and, you know, and there was a time in the 80s when people thought that Japan was, was on course to be the world's largest economy. And Japanese you know, investors bought Pebble Beach Golf Course and Rockefeller Center and so forth. And uh, and then that never really came to pass in terms of that, that uh, becoming the world's largest economy. What what uh, similarities do you see with the story in China, and and what differences? I think the the similarities are are hard to deny. I think there, there's a lot of them. Um, you mentioned the the debt buildup. 
Um, that was certainly in the, the corporate sector in Japan in the 80s, uh, a lot of it in real estate developers in these sectors. And this took a, a long time to come through. And as always happens, these sorts of levels of debt do end up affecting um, the financial sector, banks and others. And when I was working at the BOJ in the mid-90s, it was on this issue. As we deal with all this debt that ends up on the balance sheet of the financial sector, how does this play out and how is it going to affect uh, other asset markets? And this is something which China is going to be facing now as well, is ultimately the financial sector, much of which is state-owned or state-directed, is going to have to deal with these debts. And ultimately, there will have to be injections by different levels of the government to help make things whole. There's there's no way that you can avoid it. So that's similar to the situation in Japan. Uh, demographic outlook is is very similar. Debt was a second thing we mentioned. And then the third one being deflation. And, and the issue isn't so much consumer price inflation, be it food or energy or whatever. It's really asset price deflation. And it's hard to look at the the real estate market in particular in China and not see a deflationary environment unfolding um, for quite a long time. It's it's not just going to be a year or two. Hopefully, it won't be two decades, but I, I would think it would certainly be a decade. So there's always differences, but there's a lot of similarities. And ultimately, as you're implying in your, your question, what's driving this is this top-down model for growth in which the government decides that they want to favor certain industries and they favor them through a weak currency, low interest rates. You have massive savings, but those you know, those savings face financial repression. So interest rates that are much lower than um, growth levels. This feeds into industry. You get industrial excesses from it. And from the consumer side, you have all these savings, but not many investment outlooks. And then you build a housing bubble. So ultimately, Japan is still struggling with changing their model to a more Western-style, consumer-driven model. I think China has zero interest in adopting a Western-style model. President Xi is still very intent on a top-down, policy-driven, industry-type model. That isn't going to change. Um, And I think there, at least Japan realized that they do have to change the model. It's been really difficult for it. I don't think China is anywhere near the point where they realize yet that this model they have in is does have fundamental flaws. So one, you know, one blessing to the rest of the world when the Japanese real estate bubble collapsed was that while it hobbled the Japanese banks for years and years and years, and many of them were sort of insolvent, you know, on on paper, but it just you know, sort of we'll paper over that and we'll, we just, we'll go forward as if it's not the case. But it was sort of a closed system, you know, like the debt wasn't sitting on the banks of, of sitting on the balance sheets of banks in the US or Europe, unlike say what happens in what became the great financial crisis 15 years ago, where the problem was that a lot of these uh, bizarre derivative securities that uh, whose value collapsed was in fact sitting on the balance sheets of banks uh, in throughout, you know, the West. So is that it seems to me that's similar. That like if the the problems of all this debt in China seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, are unlikely to have any sort of contagion effect outside of China. Yeah. So from the perspective of investors, I, I think ultimately what this means is that the Chinese currency, renminbi, I think it's going to be on uh, have pressure for a long time. I think the equity market, which is already 
underperformed dramatically over the last decade. I think it continues to have a hard time in sectors like real estate and overall the finance sector. They struggle for a long time. It's not just a year or two. It struggles for uh, a very long time. Now, the reason why China bans it doesn't break is because there's so much domestic savings. Overall, as a percentage of GDP or for the household, as a, a percentage of income, it's two to three times what is normal in, in other Western countries. So there's a lot of domestic savings. Um, there's a closed capital account. External debt levels are very low. External debt level for China is about 21% of GDP, whereas say 100% is normal for G7 type countries. So in terms of contagion effects into or uh, negative effects for other countries, I don't think they'd be huge directly, but there's a lot of indirect effects. For example, if you're a commodity producer and the the demand growth for that commodity has come from Chinese growth, that's downshifting dramatically. So all so iron ore, copper, all the traditional uh, commodities, I think demand is going to look very different from that perspective. Energy, China continues to be a very big energy uh, importer, easily the biggest in the world, and that will continue. Um, China hasn't been a big demand driver for Western growth. It has an enormous capital account surplus. So I don't think that will matter a whole lot. And then sort of the final area that people worry about is in terms of U.S. treasuries. And people wonder, for example, now the increase we're seeing U.S. treasuries, how much that is being driven by China. And China certainly has been decreasing the amount of treasuries that they've been buying and their overall stock of treasuries held by China has been on a declining trend for the last couple of years. And I would think that continues for a while as they focus on the dealing with the imbalances domestically. So the reason I, I made the comment before when I was talking about the analogy with Japan about you know what went on in Japan with the uh, MITI, the Ministry of International Trade uh, Industry, um, directing investment is that usually that kind of top-down um, direction of investment doesn't work out very well. You know, um, people in government are not particularly skilled at determining what are going to be the, the industries that five or ten years from now will be the winners. I mean, the governments have, have generally done a poor job around the world in, in picking winners and losers, whether it's companies or industries. Um, within the, the the capital reinvestment strategies that I help manage, um, we do own a few names in China. Um, you know, in general, the, the picture you're painting is <laughs> at the macro level is not particularly rosy, and and again, capital allocation in general has not been done well by by governments uh, in China. Uh, I, I would argue, uh, but we do occasionally find companies there that that we think are doing a good job at that and and are able to reinvest at high rates of return on investment. But um, you know, you do hear this. This phrase people use these days that you know, quote, China is uninvestable. Uh, you know the, what what you're saying would, in some cases, seem to support that the the, the poor macro outlook and the, the debt overhang, et cetera. And we, we are finding uh, a few individual names that we think are are attractive. But you know, what's what's your take in general on the quote, China is uninvestable? I, I think it's it's good to think about from the capital allocation perspective because I, I think that is ultimately the issue. And as you're suggesting, the government in Beijing, like governments everywhere, are pretty terrible at capital allocation. And we're certainly seeing, saying that. 
But to say China is uninvestable means you think that no one in China is a good capital allocator. I think that's too strong a view. Overall, you know, since 2010, when we've seen the the market underperformance of Chinese equities, and it's it's enormous, like it's it's 75% underperformance relative to the S and P. But this this pretty much matches the underperformance of return in equity and return on capital of the Chinese market overall relative to the S and P. So there is a real issue with capital allocation, but that doesn't mean there aren't any companies that are good at allocating capital to generate a return on invested capital greater than their WAC or companies that aren't good with returning shareholders through buybacks, dividends, and and generating sustainable um, shareholder yield. So my, my feeling is given the, the headwinds we see for the Chinese market and Chinese economy, it's difficult to justify an overweight position to Chinese equities on anything more than a, than a trading horizon. So if your horizon's 12 months to 18 months, I think you should be underweight China. But to say it's uninvestable, so go to zero, I think that's a very strong view because there are some very good companies in China and companies which are good allocators. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks, uh, Kevin, for joining me. Oh, thank you, Steve. And uh, we'll be back with another episode uh, sometime soon. Thanks. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.tdgis.com. Institutional investors only. TD Global Investment Solutions represents TD Asset Management Incorporated, or TDAM, and Epic Investment Partners Incorporated, or TD Epic. TDAM and TD Epic are affiliates and wholly owned subsidiaries of the Toronto Dominion Bank. The TD logo and other TD trademarks are the property of the Toronto Dominion Bank or its subsidiaries. The information contained herein is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. The information is distributed with the understanding that the recipient has sufficient knowledge and experience to be able to understand and make their own evaluation of the proposals and services described herein, as well as any risks associated with such proposal or services. Nothing in this presentation constitutes legal, tax, or accounting advice. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. Certain information provided herein is based on third-party sources, and although believed to be accurate, has not been independently verified. Except as otherwise specified herein, TD Epic is the source of all information contained in this document. TD Epic assumes no liability for errors and omissions in the information contained herein. TD Epic believes the information contained herein is accurate as of the date produced and submitted, but is subject to change. No assurance is made as to its continued accuracy after such date, and TD Epic has no obligation to any recipient of this document to update any of the information provided herein. No portion of this material may be copied, reproduced, republished, or distributed in any way without the express written consent of TD Epic. Any performance information referenced represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that the investment objectives will be achieved. To the extent the material presented contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Each security discussed has been selected solely for this purpose and has not been selected on the basis of performance or any performance-related criteria. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable. The securities discussed herein may not represent an entire portfolio, and in the aggregate may only represent a small percentage of a client's holdings. Clients' portfolios are actively managed, and securities discussed may or may not be held in such portfolios at any given time. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this presentation are forward-looking statements and are based on TD Epic's research, analysis, and its capital markets assumptions. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur, and the actual results may be materially different. Additional information about capital markets assumptions is available upon request. 
Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by TD Epic.